Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your precious time. Welcome from Leon and I and from Professor Simon Finfer from uh, Sydney, Australia, from the George Institute for Global Health, the University of New South Wales, over 50 million bucks in research funding cited by tens of thousands, downloaded by millions, read enthusiastically by similar numbers. Uh, the director or past director of every possible sepsis organization, a founder of the ANZAC Clinical Trials Group, recently made Order of Australia. I, d I don't know whether Simon uh, Les Patterson still hands out those honorifics. Uh, husband of Robin, grandfather, uh, supporter of West Ham, and a fantastic golf handicap that I promised I wouldn't share, but I'm impressed. Simon, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, Peter. Thank you, both of you. We are going to have the temerity, the cheekiness to put the trial on trial a little bit right now to sort of talk about the what of the trials you've been involved, where we go from here, is the future of the trial, big data, and I don't know, the manuscript being written by ChatGPT, what trends you've seen through your career. Given that it's springtime here in Canada, one of my neighbors just reminded me that uh, camping is, is just arguing outdoors. Is the clinical trial just arguing indoors? Uh, and with all of that long introduction, excessively long introduction, Leon, take it from here and quiz our dear guest. Thank you, Peter. And yeah, thanks, Professor Fenfer, for joining us. So I work in a community site, and I guess uh, my questions will will be where the rubber hits the road. And uh, I know that you've been involved with many trials regarding fluids, and fluids and septic shock, um, safe trial comes to mind. So as a community intensivist, um, what would your recommendation be in regards to fluid type, and how much do I give? I, I guess... How much do you give is a really interesting question that's under a great deal of investigation at the moment, as you probably know. And and as Peter met, uh, alluded to, I believe we should generally be guided by clinical trials. We've done a lot of harm in the past by being guided by physiology or physiological theory. I, I do agree with your, your recent uh, interview with Mervyn Singer that there is there are stuff there is stuff to be learned from basic science and from understanding physiology we don't want to ignore it completely um, I grew up in a world where there weren't any clinical trials in critical care and everything was guided by physiology textbooks and trying to normalize physiology and we did an enormous amount of harm and I suspect we still are doing quite a bit of harm how much fluid? I mean, I'm not, I don't know the answer to that any better than anyone else. You know, you've got to look at the patient in front of you. The problem, I think, is that we generally go after the wrong targets. No, you know, no, no tachycardia. We like to see a nice sort of volume of the curve under the arterial line trace if we have such a thing and, and so forth. And yet it may not be that, and so we pursue that with by giving more fluid, and it may it may be that that's not the right thing to do. I mean, there's been two recent trials, the um, the, the the Scandinavian classic trial, where you had to be in the restrictive fluid arm, you had to be really quite hypovolemic to get fluid, um, and there was no demonstrable harm. There was no demonstrable benefit, but there was no demonstrable harm. So I can't tell you the answer. As far as fluids goes, I think the data. A reasonably convincing that you should use a balanced salt solution over normal saline, except in people with traumatic brain injury, 
where you should use normal saline. In people with other non-acute, non-traumatic acute brain injuries, we don't know the answer, whether they behave the same as people with traumatic brain injury. And if you have to give a colloid for which there is very little evidence, uh, really the only one that you should probably give is, is albumin. The, the synthetic colloids all have um, significant um, problems with them, starch most notably, but I think there are problems with the gelatins as well. No, I guess now that I've asked the really unfair question of how much and so on, that uh, brings me then to early vasopressor use. Um, is there any benefit to that? I've, I've heard it said that the only fluid aseptic shock patient needs is the fluid in which the norepinephrine is mixed. Yeah, we all like to say things like that because, they, you know, it sounds clever, doesn't it? But it's, and it's said, I hope, a little bit with tongue in cheek. As I said, um, the recent trials have not demonstrated either benefit or harm from restricted fluid and earlier use of vasopressors. Like many things, I mean, clearly we know if we allow someone's blood pressure to be naught, they don't do very well. Um, but exactly where we should target between those, the between the number of naught and a hundred, if we're talking about mean arterial pressure, um, is also not not very well uh, elucidated. In my mind, and again, this this is sort of supported a little bit by the recent trial data, but was my my mind was this way before. Fluid is not a good treatment for vasodilatation. I mean, you know, it's one medicine 101, isn't it? If the patient's hypovolemic, if they're bleeding, they need something done. They need bleeding stopped and they need probably need some replacement of vascular volume. In the, in the 80s, people went completely over the top. We were frequently see pictures from lecturers from the US in particular where people were, had put on 40 kilos because they were scared of, of norepinephrine, as you call it, which obviously comes from the epinephric gland. Um, <laughs> it's the Greek rather than the Latin. <laughs> um, so if, if you're dealing with vasodilatation, it seems logical to me to use a vasoconstrictor. And if you're dealing with profound hypovolemia to give some fluid, but and you can very easily write down how you assess intravascular volume. It's easy to write it down. It's actually a really difficult thing to do, um, and people get it wrong. Um, I'm sure I've got it wrong many times in my career. But the other thing that's interesting, and I think a lot of people, if they've read it, they've read it and said that's interesting, and then initially filed it somewhere in the back of their brain. It was the 65 study done in the UK, which suggested that if you were over 65, targeting a, a mean arterial pressure above 65 was harmful. And the other really interesting thing out of that paper, well, it wasn't harmful overall, but really interesting thing out of that paper is that the patients who seemed to do worse with a higher blood pressure target were the people who were who had pre-existing hypertension. We, you know, it's a very common thought and makes eminent sense that if you normally walk around with hypertension, that your organs are used to a high blood pressure. So you should be given a higher blood pressure when you're sick. But the only trial data that I'm aware of that's looked at that says the opposite is true. I, you know, obviously I have a, spent a lot of time researching uh, fluid and I have knowledge of exactly what those trials can tell us that maybe is more detailed than others who weren't involved in them. 
we we still kind of stumbling around a bit in the dark. I th- I can point at lots of things in in medicine where we've you know a trial has been really important and it, and often it's been important in identifying harm rather than telling you exactly how to manage a patient. The Nice Sugar Study, which was obviously a joint Australia New Zealand Canada venture with a contribution from the Mayo Clinic in, in the US said you shouldn't target normoglycemia um, because it was harmful. Um, so there's lots. The, the, how we interpret these trials and the, the nuances, and I think if you're in, Leon, if you're in a community setting, and, and let's face it, I've had the luxurious working in an academic centre. I mean, I have worked an extremely arduous clinical roster at times. When I first went to Royal North Shore Hospital, I did 39 weeks a year in the ICU and then the SAFE study and the World Congress on top. So I have had an arduous uh, roster at times, but but for the latter years when I've had dedicated research time and the ability to read all the primary research, that's not a luxury that a lot of people have. What are your information sources? How do you find reliable information sources that distill information in a way that you can apply to your practice and trust? I, I did a talk for Ollie uh, Flower and Roger Harris, who's also been on your podcast for about the good, the bad, and the ugly of research. And there's there's a huge responsibility on researchers to be ethical and do robust, reliable research. Because if I do bad research and it changed people's practice, I, I could I could be responsible for harming thousands of patients. The whole issue around research fraud and you know the whole vitamin C thing which diverted research funding and research effort to to basically debunk um, something which should never have needed de- debunking in the first place if you take a very close look at, at the evidence behind the original paper. So for, for people working in, in community settings and with big, busy cl- clinicians, but I did a, a, a presentation at the SMAC conference a few years ago about um, where do you get information from and I'd surveyed the uh, ICU trainees in my hospital the, you know we do a journal club but otherwise they get that they don't really you know spend or have the time to spend when they're revising for their, their exams etc to be trying to read all all the primary literature so they get their information I mean nowadays it's got to be on a mobile phone so there's you know they get it from up to date, they get it from podcasts, they get it from websites, you know, critical care reviews by, you know, Rob McSweeney is a fantastic resource, etc. And then they get it from trusted colleagues. And often it's not the attending or the specialist who is their trusted colleagues. Sometimes it's just the the senior trainee who's who's passed their exams and, and who they trust and who talk sensibly. Simon, I'm I'm going to pop in at this point because I think you've brought up about seven or eight really useful seams that we can mine here. Um, and it all sort of starts with Leon and I prepared for this and, and Leon said, well, I'm going to ask him quick fire questions and he's going to tell me 
how much fluid to give, how much vasopressor to give. And, and I said, yeah, maybe Leon, but this man's a brilliant trialist and there is a gap between trials and the clinical work, which I think is a fascinating thing for all of us because we go, we listen to the trial and then we go, right, Monday morning, what did you learn at your conference? Oh, and then we translate it or, la- or do not translate it or it gets lost in the the vortex of knowledge translation. So I think that's a really important point that's come up. Let, let's put the trial on trial a bit. I mean, I'm a huge fan of clinical trials, probably because I don't do them. I know what it takes to do them. And I know it's a fantastic way of getting past bias and getting past, as you say, the glib lines that we all like to use. You know, more people have drowned on land than at sea. Ha ha ha. I still don't know how much fluid to give my patient. My dad taught me that a drug's a compound that when injected into a mouse creates a publication and lengthens a CV. Where is the disconnect and where do we go from here? Because you deserve a huge amount of credit for being an early adopter of things like SMAC when other people weren't. I think you got it that this is how people are going to learn for good and for bad in the future. These are groups that we have to engage with. You're kind enough to come on a podcast like this at a ludicrously early hour in the morning because I think you get it. One of the things I've always admired about you is you get it that to get the message out there, you've got to be pretty multilingual. What's the future of the trial looking like? It's a very interesting question. And I think that um, one of the things that came out of COVID, which sometimes I refer to as glibly, if you like, as collateral benefit, is a complete sort of acceleration of the acceptance of novel clinical trial designs, particularly adaptive platform trials. So the success of recovery and remap cap for two in rapidly investigating and um, demonstrating benefit you know, because it was um, the way it was put together and, and, and the chief executive of the NHS telling all the hospital executives that they must support this trial um, to try and work out how to treat people with COVID. So I think we're likely, to, we're going to see that develop more and more. And there are there are a number of, if, if you're in the research community, there are a number of organizations that are running webinars on you know how to how to design and run a, a platform trial etc so this is i think important that the clinical trial endeavor becomes more efficient i mean we did three large fluid trials we recruited nearly 20,000 patients into them but it took us 20 years there is a and and the use of bayesian statistics rather than frequentist statistics so so moving away from the obsession with the p value of 0.05 and instead being presented with something which i think clinicians like you know there is a 99.3% probability that balanced salt solutions reduce mortality in critically ill patients rather than looking at um, a p-value or a confidence interval, etc. Bayesian statistics produce these posterior probabilities that, that I think are in t- inherently intuitive to clinicians that they like. And the reason for doing really large pragmatic trials is to overcome the play of chance. Now, I, I did a presentation in, in Brussels um, and one of the things I put up was a slide that shows the treatment effect of steroids within the adrenal trial at um, in quartiles of recruitment. 
So after we'd recruited a thousand patients, now we didn't know this result because obviously we're blinded. It's an entirely blinded trial. And in order not to be biased, you should never know what's happening in your trial. But if we had stopped the trial at 1000 patients, we would have reported a statistically significant benefit from the use of corticosteroids in septic shock. So if you let that sink in, because we had done a designed a trial with frequentist statistics, et cetera, and we were going to do a 3,800 patient trial, we didn't know that. The DSMB knew that, but um, that's not enough to stop a trial using the sort of you know conservative stopping rules that we would use. So we went on to 3,800 patients, at which point there was no treatment effect. Had we been part of the recovery trial using Bayesian statistics within a platform trial, we would probably have stopped and we would have said steroids work for septic shock. Um, And that, if you actually stop and think about that, it's a little bit scary. Now, why did the treatment, because the treatment effect does vary during a clinical trial. And again, I went into that in some detail in my presentation in Brussels, which one can do with, you You know, I know we all hate PowerPoint to a degree, but it is sometimes good to put up a few pictures. When, when we did prowess shock, and I wrote the paper, protocol paper that was published in intensive care medicine, and it was... Um, interesting, it's the only paper I've ever written and the only paper I ever will write that was the subject of three editorials in the same journal. So they had three editorials on it. And one was um, by people from the NIH who said, remember a clinical trial, no matter how big it is, how robust it is, is just one experiment. And replication is the cornerstone of science. So whilst we want to make the clinical trial Um, endeavor much more efficient we want to get to answers quickly and in the covid uh you know pandemic this was you know a global health emergency you know our hospitals were being overwhelmed we had to generate data quickly and and in that scenario i think the risk of generating false data um has to be accepted in terms of how long it takes to design fund conduct clinical trial we should try to get as best we can to that elusive thing known as the truth. I think the other sort of holy grail of clinical research at the moment is is this whole question of subtyping and endotyping people. So maybe within adrenal, I can't, I have no information that can tell you why the treatment effect went at a thousand patients to, hey, we can report a p-value of 0.03. And, you know, we're going to, we got it, it was in the New England anyway, but we can get this into the New England and it's going to change what everybody does. Why did it go? Was that because there was something different about the patients we were recruiting? Was it just the play of chance? We, we expanded the trial into the UK um, and into other countries. Are the patients that were recruited there, do they have a d- different genotype that means they respond differently? Do they have a different gene expression profile? There's a whole, there's so many unanswered questions in there. But that's the next, that's really the holy grail of where we're trying to go to work out when we do a trial, when we do a big trial, can we look at this strange thing called heterogeneity of the treatment effect? The trial reports the average treatment effect. So when we when you see a 7,000 patient trial like, like say for a 3,800 patient trial like, um, like adrenal, the relative risk of death is 
you know, 0.99. The question is, within that, is there are there patients we're harming and are there patients we're helping and can we identify those patients? And there are that's that was the whole um, basis of the the roundtable discussion at Brussels this year that precedes the main conference. Um, and clearly, that's where cancer's gone. So, so sorry, go yeah, stop me talking and ask me a question, Pete. No, no, it's all very. Most people are in the hospital car park now, wishing this guy would shut up. <laughs> Critical care commute. <laughs> I've done the commute with you in Sydney. It can take a while. Um, what about the hype cycle? I mean, I'm, I'm. It, it, it's an idea from investment, but I think it has something to tell us in medicine too. This idea that we have this peak of expectation and then this crash of sort of despondency and. And eventually, we get to the plateau. In other words, this drug is for everyone. This drug is for nobody. No, no, it's the right drug for the right patient at the right dose for the right duration. Is there any way to get us through that faster, or do we? Or, or is that what science is? It's a sort of twenty-year journey, as you say, where we slowly get to something called the truth, i.e., the plateau. And was part of the problem during COVID that that we threw out the null hypothesis? In other words, we didn't want to disprove things; we wanted to prove things. We were desperate to find something that would help. I think we can speed the process. We can make it more efficient. Um, um, we've been very reluctant to stop trials early because because we know about how the treatment effect can vary during a trial, and you've designed a trial to answer a question. You know, it's important to re- replicate. Replication is very important. We can only treat patients to the best of our ability with the knowledge that's available to us at, at, at a given point in time. So, if Paul Marek had done a a, a big trial a robust trial that suggested that vitamin C reduced mortality, then I would have not been against people giving vitamin C, but I would also not have been against um, doing another randomized trial to make sure that result was valid. So you've got to treat I, I the, this hype thing, you know, I mean, social media is, you know, I mean, it's here to stay. And what can we do about the people who come in, I'm sure, into everybody's ICU clutching a piece of paper they've printed off the internet. And they email me and say, you know, this guy's found the cure for sepsis. Why aren't we using it in Australia? And it takes the amount of effort needed to refute bullshit is is way bigger than the amount necessary to create it in the first place. And, And it you need sensible commentators. Who, you know, there are lots of really smart, really sensible people around. You know, you've had quite a number of them on your podcast prior to me. You have some iconoclasts. You know, Mervyn, who, who's, who's I've listened to his podcast. He's great, and he challenges thinking, and and we all like to do that. I don't know that we can get away from this hype thing because. We have been desperate in critical care for treatments with solid evidence that this improves outcome. The reality is that the outcome of critical illness has improved out of sight during my working life. And as I've just given up clinical work to, to become a full-time academic, but I qualified a scarily long time ago. I actually qualified in 1981. So I did 42 years in the ICU. I thought that was a reasonable effort. If I may, Simon, your first clinical trial was on bloodletting and mercury compounds, was it not? <laughs> it's leeches. 
Um, but um, when I started out, you know, the quoted mortality rate for cardiogenic shock was 80%. For septic shock, it was 80%. People who were on ventilators in the first hospitals I worked in, the ventilators were very rudimentary and they, it wasn't unusual to have three intercostal catheters in each side of the chest because you've blown their lungs apart with these incredibly rudimentary ventilators. So, and the first ICU I ever worked in in England had a blanket ban on admitting anyone over the age of 65 because they was considered they would be too old to survive care. Now, if we banned everyone over the age of 65 from our ICUs in Australia, we wouldn't have any work to do. Simon, let me dive into a cut, because you've, you've brought up so many of the issues that we care about on a podcast like this. We've talked about Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle that you brought up, the amount of energy that we're now devoting to nonsense science and harebrained schemes. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm fascinated what you think about how we... I don't know, engage with the public at the same time as not engaging with every harebrained scheme. We're going to have Hannah Wunchan, who's going to talk about the history of ICU, because she's just written a fabulous book about the polio epidemic mm. and how our specialty grew into something that we can be proud of, not ashamed of. And so you've seen all of this. Now, is the future still the clinical trial? You know, I've, I've heard them criticized as the vanity of small differences. I don't think there's any way that we get away from clinical trials because if we could make the right decisions based on clinical observation um, and other methods, then we would not have the variation in practice that is so apparent to everyone across the world. I mean, there's variation within hospitals. In specialists working in the same department who get on with each other, Ollie, Roger, me, others, you know, will do different things. Um, now, either means it doesn't matter, those things don't make a difference to outcome, or it means that someone's helping and someone's harming. And if we could sort that out with clinical observation, we would all have arrived at the right thing to do. So I don't think the clinical trial is dead. What can we learn from observational data? We can learn a lot. We're learning as much as we can. For instance, some things, uh, you know, we have huge amounts of data. I mean, the ICU is such a data-rich environment that we, we, there are things we can investigate. The whole question of low tidal volume ventilation started off with Keith Hickling reporting permissive hypercapnia in 50 with n equals 50 in patients with asthma in that was reported in 1990 in intensive care medicine and that led to people thinking oh well maybe what i've been taught that hypercarbia which causes acidosis which inhibits um, the contraction of the gas the frog gastrocnemius muscle in a petri dish isn't quite so important in an actual whole human being in a critical care unit. And that led to the ARDSNET trial and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So observational data does have a role to play. We really do want the most unbiased information we can get. Um, and we haven't talked about cognitive biases and confirmation bias and all the other massive number of cognitive biases that influence how we think and behave which is basically what a, a well-designed clinical trial does, is to get rid of all those biases. So I don't, I don't think the trial's dead. 
but I also don't write off every other form of research. And I think that's a brilliant way to wrap this up. And by the way, a, a number of uh, people we've interviewed have bigged up Rob McSweeney and the Belfast Group Critical Care Reviews meeting. I just looked it up. It's June 14th to the 16th in Belfast, and it will be exactly what you've talked about, Simon, a fantastic forum to explore I'm not going to say the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there isn't much ugly. The good, the what could be even better, and, and how we take the data off the page and take it to the edge of the mattress. I mean, that's a really great meeting because trials actually get picked apart properly, and that's how it should be. And he, and he puts it all on the internet for free. So even if you can't get to Belfast, as I can't this year, um, then you know it's, it's available. I, I think people should make titanic efforts to get to Belfast. I'm going to let Leanne wrap this up, but uh, I'm not going to let you do so before I, I say thank you, Simon, on behalf of your many thousands of mentees, of which I regard myself as one, as you hang up the stethoscope and just move into 150% busy in academic work. Thank you very, very much for all you've contributed and continue to do so. Leon, over to you. Yeah, thank you so much. There's, there's not a hell of a lot more to say other than thank you so much for carving out time in your busy schedule and joining us on this show. Uh, thank you for listening as well. You've alluded a couple of times that you've listened to some of the uh, the previous episodes. We really do appreciate that. Well, thank you for doing this. I think it's a really great idea because uh, I certainly, you know, again, when we talk about where do people get their information from, you know, when a lot of us still bad people drive to and from work, then listening to a podcast is more instructive than, than listening to uh, either the news, which is generally depressing, or the same music again and again and again. Yeah. Well, which is precisely why, uh, why we took on a project like this. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.